DraftKings Sportsbook and Casino is coming to Ontario. Soon you'll be able to legally bet on all your favorite sports, ranging from soccer to playoff hockey and so much more. And that's not all. What if we told you the hottest new casino will be available right from your phone? DraftKings has all the latest features and promotions, ranging from daily odds boosts to best in-class casino games and so much more. Soon you'll be able to place a same-game parlay, score daily odds boosts, and play your favorite slots games anytime, anywhere in the province. DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable. Best of all, you can deposit and withdraw your cash whenever you want. Get excited, Ontario. DraftKings Sportsbook and Casino is on the way. While you wait, check out DraftKings now and tell them I sent you by using promo code FOOTBALL. That's promo code FOOTBALL. DraftKings Sportsbook and Casino, coming soon to Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-866-531-2600, 19-plus, physically present in Ontario. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details, subject to successful AGCO registration and execution of an operating agreement with iGaming Ontario. listening to the Northern Football Podcast with Peter Galindo and Thomas Knapp. Yes, it's episode 61 of the Northern Football Podcast. I'm Peter Galindo with Thomas Neff and Alexander Gongay-Ruzik. Again, my God, fourth cap in what, a week now? You guys just can't keep me away. We cannot, we, we cannot. It's a loan with an option to purchase. That's right. You are our Stefan Estacchio. Uh, an undisclosed fee. Undisclosed undisclosed. Fee. I better play more than <laughs> Stefan Estacchio now. Well, you are currently <laughs> right true. now. Getting let's, some let's good 90-minute shifts. You are. You are. And then perhaps more. We'll see. Anyways, a reminder to all of you that if you aren't already doing so, please subscribe to the Northern Football Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. If your platform of choice is Apple or Spotify, then leave us a rating and review there as well. So by now you already know, Canada was drawn into Group F at the 2022 World Cup with Belgium, Croatia, and Morocco. To kick off the show, gentlemen, uh, the poll has made its return. We asked you, the listeners, are you happy with Canada's World Cup group? And at the time of recording, from 238 votes, 89% of you say yes and 11% of you say no. We also received some comments and questions from quite a handful of you. Uh, Wsoccer.ca says, can't wait to listen to your analysis. And Zachary Rip is saying, Canada and their good midfield loses out twice, maybe three times. This is a nightmare draw. Christopher Phillips, I'd be shocked if they don't set up a friendly with England. And speaking of friendlies, here's what Herman had to say regarding organizing a friendly, and it's not what you think. I think, you know, it, it can't just be a technical decision. I think there's there's commercial opportunities, there's things that we have to think about that are going to help the grassroots of our sport, the, the coach education in our sport. I mean, this is what this opportunity is. It's, it's more than just playing at a World Cup. It's everything that can raise the game in this country. And we want to make sure we use that opportunity in this way. So I'd say June, we've got Nations League games, but there's a small window right at the front end that gives us a chance to 
take a friendly game here in Canada. We absolutely will push to, to do that. I don't know how many teams want to come to Canada at that time of year. So that'll probably line us up there to head to Europe in the fall. Phillips again says it's a tough group, but definitely one that we can compete in. Opening game against Belgium is super exciting. Mark Paluch, uh, aging Belgium and Croatia team, good matchup with our speed. Now, gentlemen, let's get to the questions. Uh, first one is from Dan Clark. Which of these teams does Canada match up the best to? Oh boy, I mean, we're gonna. It's gonna be easy, really. I mean, one thing that I'll, I'll certainly say is looking at the draw. Yes. Canada did pretty well. We could talk. They don't. We could talk about the permutations that draw. I'm just looking here with what the U.S. and Mexico were drawn in Group B and C. It was A, D, E, F, G, or H for Canada. I'm looking A as much as yes. You think it's 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 good because it's Qatar's out of pot one. Qatar Lucky is sneaky man. Qatar's a good group. team and they're at home and there's something like only one host team has ever not made it out the group and I Qatar is a lot better than the, the, the than a lot of teams that have made it out of the group as hosts even Russia Ecuador they made it through the bloodbath in a pretty good position in Inconmebol Senegal Kings of Africa the Netherlands they're on a very good path you don't want that group D yes you you would want group D I think France based on the you know yes France is going to be very very good but there is always the world cup champions hangover curse whatever you want to call it and it's France you never know with them right yeah exactly <laughs> they're one year they're champions one year they're they're you know it's turmoil amongst the, the team you look at the intercontinental playoff between Peru Australia or UAE those are relatively ga games you'd back if you're Canada amongst others Denmark yes that's a very solid outing but I think you'd take that you didn't want Group E, Spain, Germany, Japan. That's that's a, that's a group. That's definitely yeah. that Japan underrated. Steer Ger clear of that. Germany and Spain. We need. We don't need to talk. Group G as well. Like Brazil, Serbia, Switzerland. That would have been a very tough yeah, draw. Man. Like Brazil's arguably the favorites. So don't sleep on Serbia and and Switzerland. That's like two European teams in Brazil. You don't want that. And lastly. Group H is something, something where it's very similar to Canada's group now. I think where Portugal is a good pot one team. Uruguay is a team I personally want out of pot two for Canada, Jason, based on how they match up and how, how that game would be. And then Korea is very, very sneaky. It's a hard team, but I think would be good. But I think among those draws, Group F, you could argue, is one of the better ones. And for me, the team that I'm really uh, liking the matchup for is Morocco. I think that's going to be a very entertaining match between one of the top teams in Africa, one of the top teams in CONCACAF now in Canada. Belgium and Croatia will be tough. One thing is that Peter and, and Thomas and I will talk about, they do match up with, with these two teams in certain ways, but in terms of Morocco, there's a cl more clear baseline of talent level that's, yeah. that's similar, and then the matchup uh, should favor, could favor Canada, as we'll talk about. It also benefits Canada that they play Morocco last in terms of the way the matches are going to play out, because you could argue they start with, on paper, the best team in Belgium. That's what everybody's going to say. And then they kind of work their way down in terms of the, the descending quality. But as for which of the teams matches up the best, you can make the argument for any of them apart from probably Croatia. I feel Croatia is just going to control every game they're going to be involved in. Um, unless they went up against a Spain, for example, which we saw at the Euros. Morocco's right side with Hakimi and Munir when he is available. Imagine if they had Ziyech um, on that right side. Or Ziyech, my God, yeah. Or I mean, it's never, it's not, it's, thing is, it's seven months, maybe Ziyech <laughs> yeah, comes back. Yeah, comes back, maybe. exactly. So then you have even more problems, right? But they're going to go directly head-to-head -head with Davies and Atakubi, so that's a really good matchup. And that is probably going to be where that game is won and lost. 
they do mix it up in open play when it comes to how they approach their attacks in terms of the side that they attack in. Uh, yes, the right side is their dominant side, but they do sometimes kind of balance it out. But if you look back to AFCON, if you look back to these two legs against DR Congo, they still leaned heavily towards that right side, in open play at least. And Yusuf and Nasiri, yeah, he's struggling for form this season for club and country, but the underlying numbers are still really good and he is sneaky good at creating space for himself in the box. You probably don't want to go against him either, but it's a good matchup. And the thing with the World Cup is... There was going to be no easy group that they got. You can make the argument for this team is going to give them a problem here because it's the cream of the crop, guys, right? And they're tactically driven, technically and, and talent-wise. Every team is going to have, well, maybe not every team, but certainly the majority of teams are going to have world-class players in multiple positions where it was going to be a difficult out regardless. Part of me really, really wanted England or Argentina. It's super ironic that Canada was the last team drawn like, you know, the first time making 36 years, and we had literally had to wait until the last second, you know, to find out where Canada would be playing. When Ghana was picked into that Portugal-Uruguay group, I was very disappointed because I think that group is much more accessible, Portugal being the last group, uh, the last team uh, from pot one. Uh, and Uruguay, you know, not clearly the best. I mean, you know, they struggled in qualifying at times. But at the end, they were much better under Diego Alonso. Mm. And, and like now that he's giving young players a shot, they are going to be really, really good at this World Cup. I'm actually quite high on them. I always have been, though. A lot can change in seven months. But look, I mean, what Peter said pretty much. I mean, you know, you jump in two feet first against Belgium. And once it gets to that point, if they don't pick up at least a couple of, like at least a draw against... Croatia, then the World Cup is over for them. Well, and, and we'll dive more into this later, but I think Group G would have been like the like think I look when I look at this, I think Group G is like the group death for me. And Group E. I would still say Group E personally. Yeah, group E is gonna be a bloodbath. Especially e like I, I have a feeling Costa Rica is gonna sneak through and knowing how they are at international tournaments, like Spain, Costa Rica, Germany, Japan. Taylor Navas could just steal them a point or two just based on how good he is, really. Yeah. So no, that's. I think with Canada, the one thing I am not too enthused about is the fact they got the, the the A two spot in the in the group. Just because, yeah, it's cool that you play Belgium, Croatia, Morocco, but you want that Morocco game first or second because it's the one you went on paper. Just because you do worry that you head into Belgium and Croatia, you need a point just to have that last game mean something, and you kind of see that yeah. with the, the last World Cup with Panama, Belgium, England, uh, Tunisia group. Tunisia in, in, in Panama, I mean, they, they got battered in both the games, but by the time they made the last game, it was irrelevant. It didn't mean anything because of how it was drawn. Whereas you look at La another group that was similar in my eyes is Iran, Portugal, Spain, and uh, Morocco. Uh, Morocco that, la that time, because Iran and Morocco played first, Iran won. They were an inch away from making it just because oh, they, yes, they so had close. the belief they knew, okay, we can just draw Spain. It's in our destiny. We're not eliminated by the last game. Yeah. And I think it just psychologically makes a bit yeah. of a difference to have that, you know, winning that, that game where you see is winnable before you're taking on the Giants yeah. just so you can know that. Like, what do I we need uh, in terms yeah. of the, the how it lines up? Because the fact that you have to play Belgium first and you need a point out of that or Croatia, like, that's a tall, tall ask for your first World Cup in 36 years. Yeah. You would, like your more realistic game first, because there's a very strong chance you head into Morocco and you're already eliminated, which would, would be unfortunate. Well, speaking of the next question, Van Jess wants to know who from Morocco is a threat. Two names come up to me in my mind. It's the Montreal-born goalkeeper, Bono, 
and um, uh, Hakimi. I mean, yeah. Well, th- th- those are the obvious answers. Um, Munir and Hakimi do combine nicely on that right hand side, so that makes that entire flank a threat, as I already touched on. But as Alex also said, if Ziyech changes his mind or Masrawi changes his mind, that just adds even more strength to that flank and makes it even a bigger threat. So, and in terms of Nasiri, because I mentioned his underlying numbers and all that and how they're so sneaky good in La Liga, he's averaging 0.43 XG per 90 this season, but he's only scored three goals, I think, when the numbers would dictate that based on that pattern of, of chances that he is getting on the end of, he'd probably be at seven or eight, maybe pushing double digits if he would be in line with that expected goal. So he's a good striker, a very good striker. Yeah, I mean, just to add, because obviously for me, I'm looking at their each team, if you're doing like a big four, I think for Morocco's their big four would probably be Bounou, Hakimi, and Nasiri, and and Munir. But for me, two guys I'm looking at in secondary roles is at the back, Romain Saïs. Oh, he's been so good this year. He's been so So sneaky good for a few seasons now with Wolves in that back three, which Morocco now plays to get more out of Hakimi. I think having him as the captain of Morocco and just with the role he plays in that back three, he's going to have to be very, very solid. And I think he'll be ready for that, especially because he's stepped up big time when Mehdi Benaccia retired after the last Uh, World Cup cycle. So I'm highlighting Saïs. And another one is because Morocco, one area where they're... A bit weaker, especially on papers in midfield. You look at For some, sure they some of their names. It's yeah. not exactly a position of strength. Uh, they're not going to get a lot of offense from there, but one guy who does do that is Sofiane Buffal. Sometimes plays yeah. up front, sometimes plays a number 10. Drifts inside from the wing yeah, sometimes. exactly. You know? He's going to play a big creator role. Yeah. You, know, you know, He doesn't always score a lot for Morocco, but if you watch him at AFCON, he had some big games kind of in that, that creator role. Yeah. Um, you know. Just based on what, what he can bring to that, I think for, from what Morocco's needs, I think Buffal could be a sleeper for, for Canada to watch out for. That entire group now essentially plays with the back three because Croatia also experimented with it in recent friendlies and in recent qualifiers or Nations League games. We saw Morocco go to it against DR Congo and Hakimi, to your point, Alex was super attack. He was basically a winger. Oh, that's that's why they did the that's formation. Why they did it. Yeah, to, it to makes, provide cover. makes a lot of yeah. sense because the thing is with Hakimi, he plays in a he's played in a back four three years now with Dortmund. He was playing yeah. in a back four. Yeah. Um, Inter Milan, I guess he was playing in a back five. I am wrong on that point, yes. but and then it, now at PSG, it's a back four, and he still is constantly exactly. among one of the best fullbacks at getting in the box, getting up the pitch. So yeah. he's going to be a weapon no matter what they yes. play. But the fact that they've kind of just gone. Play back. We'll play back through. We've got Saïs Ankerin with someone like Nayef Aguirre is also a very underrated player. I got to mm-hmm. watch him a lot for for Ren. He's a very solid yeah, player on on right. on set pieces in the air. He's a, he's a machine. So the fact they have you know Aguirre, Saïs, and some of those names in that back three it does free up so much space for Hakimi. Well, speaking of Morocco, to wrap up and move to the next point, uh, they are ranked 24th. So as Alex uh, did tweet earlier, uh, in a way, it is a balanced group. Uh, but again, group. that is kind of the, the game that you do earmark. And w- uh, worth noting on ELO ratings, which are more recent, Morocco is actually below Canada, yeah. which is... Shows Canada's like, what, 28th? 28th, like Morocco's 34th yeah. on ELO, which is more like yeah. the last two, three years, right. whereas FIFA rankings are more like last five years. Yeah. Sleeper picks. Historically, how many points do you need at a World Cup to get out of your group? It's four. I, th- I think uh, there's been times before four. where a group you has advanced with three. Well, you can miss with four <laughs> if there's a three, you know, two-way like tie or if there's a four-way tie. Yeah. But 
ideally four is what you need to have yes. a chance on the last yes. day. So you need at least a point heading in the last day, yeah. unless your group has a, a, a catastrophic, you know, something catastrophic happens. Sorry, but yeah, usually, usually four is the magic number, unless you're Senegal and you get too many yellow cards. <laughs> that look, was so unfortunate, honestly. Look, that was a balanced group, let me tell you. If Canada can put a strong performance against Belgium, and keep the score respectable, like lose two nothing, but really give Belgium like a like a good game, to the point where like Roberto Martinez will like say after the press conferences, will say after the press conference, I'm like impressed by this team. That is very good for Canada's confidence heading to that second game, you know, against Croatia. Uh, giving that obviously Croatia, as you mentioned, you know, they made the finals in 2018, and yes, a lot of the same players are still around, but. Here's the thing with these European teams. Even if some recognizable names are still not there, they're still playing at very good clubs. And yes, maybe you guys won't like this, but I, th I think Herman, when he calls out for these players to be called into international, better clubs internationally, he does have a point. But I was on MLS in Spanish the other day saying that it doesn't matter um, if who K is up against. He will like these, these players will do the job. Of course they will. Oh, of course. They'll, they'll be up for it. So it's... Uh, and just one last point. Now we're on permutations. In my head, one area, if you want Canada to get some help, if they do lose their first two games, you do hope Morocco grabs a win. We could have a 9-3-3-3 group if Canada has a good yes, goal difference. Yes, exactly. That's what I mean. So three points, it, it happens Rarely. if one team just Rolls runs in. away with the group. Next question is from Mark Cavajo. Uh, could not be happier. I was looking at pot two and Croatia was a team I singled out for. Uh, and one for part one. If it wasn't Qatar, uh, more on that later. I mean, there was a pretty tough group that Qatar has. Uh, I thought Belgium might be on the downside of the golden generation. I would have preferred Tunisia from part three, but I'll take Morocco. Belgium is the tough one. They're really the tough one to gauge, whereas I think, I think Bel personally, I think, I, I think we all think Belgium is going to be a very good team. I think you look at the, the roster, there, there's a lot to like there. I mean, any team with Kevin De Bruyne is going to have a chance. But uh, you just look on based on the fact, and the same thing really goes with Croatia. It's how their old stars can sustain themselves heading into the next year. I think the fact that it's in November actually doesn't help them. Because look at someone like, for Croatia, look at Luka Modric. Like, he's having a fantastic season right now. If the World Cup was in July... You'd, oh, I'd be afraid. Or in June, you'd, <laughs> you, you make know, a very yes. good point. But you do I'm wonder, still afraid, by the way. Oh, I'm Keep still very mind. afraid. Like, but in seven months, he's all that much older. He has a summer break. Maybe he isn't able to... You know, yeah. maybe isn't able to hit the ground running like he has and, and get the same form. So that is one area where these teams are going to have to hope that they're older players. And I mean, the same thing goes for Canada with someone like Atiba Hutchinson. How is he going to respond after a, a, an off season? But uh, yeah. that's that's really the thing with Belgium and Croatia. If they play to their maximum potential, it's going to be near impossible for for Canada to to, to grab a result. I'll be honest; it's, those are two top quality teams. But what gives Canada a chance? Other than some of the tactical wrinkles, which I don't know if we'll get to, I'm sure we'll we'll, we'll find some uh, some time. We'll to find get, some excuses. We'll find some excuse to get into it here. But uh, beyond the, the the tactical wrinkles, you do hope that those teams could maybe age out. Maybe they, they go through that that sort of generational, which they they are. You know, you look at Croatia, for example, like of their top players, like five of them are in their mid to late thirties. Like that's never ideal heading into to a World Cup like this. So we'll, we'll see how much magic they can get out of their roster because. For me, there's no doubt if they're at their top level, it's going to be a very, very, very tough matchup for Canada. Well, you bring up Belgium. The next question is an interesting one. Is Belgium able to keep up with Canada's speed? <laughs> um, what a question this is. Look, here's what I'll say. 
Belgium's defense is in limbo right now. If they go with Tim Castagna, then one of Denayer or Boyata centrally in the back three, and then Vertonghen on the left side of that back three, plus their attack-minded wingbacks, then I think Canada can almost replicate what they did against the U.S. in Nashville and just kind of sit in a mid-block and then try to target them down the flanks and against, one-on-one especially, against that Belgium defense, specifically Vertonghen, if he is starting, they can have some decent chances at goal, I think, if they just utilize that strategy. And if Canada were to set up in a 4-5-1 off the ball, if you go back to that quarterfinal against Italy at the Euros, I wrote about this specifically on .ca, if you guys want to check that out. Italy was profiting by, at times, pressing high against Belgium when they were trying to build from the back and just trying to negate that double pivot of Witzel and Tielemans. Now, Canada's not going to be able to do that for 90 minutes. Not against Belgium. That's why if they sit in those 4-5-1 mid-blocks and then try to target the flanks, that could be the way to go against them. And who knows? If you just prevent the ball from coming into Lukaku, which he hasn't had much success getting the ball at Chelsea so far, then you negate that threat completely and then maybe you stand a chance of getting a point. Yeah, I'm looking at Belgium if I'm Canada... First of all, they have to figure out what their game plan is in the middle. Do you go for when you're, you know, like you mentioned, we expect a, a midfield trio of Kevin De Bruyne kind of at the top of the pivot with uh, Axel Vistel and uh, Yuri Tielemans underneath him. Are you going to try to counter that by going three and just really trying to cut out the triangles? Do you go with something like, a, you know, like, like we've seen a lot of an Azorio, Stacchio, K kind of trio or Hutchinson in there? Or do you go what, what Canada did successfully against Mexico and go for a double pivot? And you just rock your Hutchinson, mm-hmm. your Stacchio, go for a 4-4-2 and try to exploit uh, down that, that back three. Especially the one thing that does hurt Belgium, I find, is they don't really have natural wingbacks. I mean, Mounier, he is a beast when, he, yep. when he's on his game uh, on one side. But you look at the other side, they they always try, you know, you see sometimes Yannick Carrasco plays there and he's a fantastic attacking player. Not exactly... He does play for for the Cholos, Atletico Madrid. Yeah. So he has a bit of defensive identity in him, but he isn't necessarily a natural no, not pure, w- at least. wing back. So that could be an area where, like, you know, a Tejan Buchanan in a 4-4-2 could do a lot of damage down the flanks if Canada's double pivot just finds a way to soak up enough midfield. You unleash Davies and Buchanan on, in wide roles and just run with your David Laren uh, a pivot up front. Or do you choose, if you're Herdman, like Peter says, go for more of a, a 4-5-1 where you decide to, to be a little more solid in midfield. I think that's what Herdman's going to have to find out. What's the best way to attack this Belgian yeah. team? Is it Do you go for a double pivot and let Witzel and, and Tielemans play the ball but take away De Bruyne? Do you go for a three-man and try to take away the triangles? You know, do you even just dare try to man mark De Bruyne and let you know let everything else figure out? Like, there's Bold a lot strategy, of, Cotton. Let's see if it pays <laughs> off. There's a lot of options. Personally, I'm thinking more. You go double pivot. You just try to to really cut that supply, like you did against Mexico. Just keep things compact and cut down the lines. But it could be risky. Yes, because Mexico, as many people will know, is not Belgium. That um, is so exactly. I mean, it will, so I mean, it will be a bit of a different strategy, possibly. But and we'll somehow see, right? they could have been uh, pot one if it wasn't for That's some right. unfortunate ranking. That's right. Which stuns me, by the way. PA, sir, pretty obvious we'll need to play friendlies against European sides and get ready for the World Cup. Who would you see as the perfect fit to play against ahead of the World Cup? Similar question from Bales. Now that the draw is finished, which countries do you think Canada should try and schedule friendlies against? Well, for me, I would say Herman makes it very clear. It's going to be tough to get a country to come in in June, uh, you know, as, as a home 
uh, game after mm-hmm. the Nations League. Again, the whole thing about the Nations League, I think it's just such a wasted opportunity. Canada has done it in CONCACAF, and we'll talk more about the, the two games that they didn't win, but it's time now to play against the big boys, and I think it helps a lot that the plan is to go to Europe in September. Well, this is the thing. You have four Nations League games in June. Just before that, you are going to have a, a brief period of time after the end of the European season and leading up to that Nations League window where you're, you can have a friendly. I would imagine Herdman's going to approach it squad-wise slightly differently. But as for the teams that could come in, I know we were talking about this off-air, Alex, but you're probably going to look at a South American side to come into Canada, maybe an African team that hasn't made the World Cup, like, for example, Egypt or Algeria, right, who I think could be pretty solid opponents. Yeah, well, I mean, one thing that isn't being talked about, and I think we can't properly talk about until the Nations League draw happens there's a possibility that Canada only has to play two Nations League games in June because with how the right. draw is, they're in League they're in League A. There's there's only three teams you get a buy. There's some there's six yeah. match days designated for late Nations League. There's four of those match days will be in June, and the other two will be after the World Cup. Yeah, in March. There's a slight possibility the way the schedule is, they could have only two of them in June and then two of them in March. So there is a possibility. That Canada might have room for two friendly. So I just thought that was interesting. Herdman is very insistent on one. Maybe he knows something about the draw that, that we don't. Because I was just wondering Probably, in my head. Actually, I'm like thinking right. like, if you only have two Nations League games, why would you not want two friendlies, right? But yeah, for me in terms of the teams itself, uh, for the, the, the home friendlies in, in June, I think you have a better chance at Comma Bowl or CAF. I think if you can get maybe one of the teams in Comma Bowl or CAF that didn't make it would be nice. Um, you know, maybe you get like a like a Colombia, maybe your your Chile. That could be fun to see Chile come. Which they would sell out. <laughs> oh yes, I'm sure it would. Ooh. <laughs> but, 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 but look, look, let, let, let's be real here. I mean, they, European teams are not coming. By the way, in no, June. especially not on surface. No unless yeah. you play a BMO on grass. But it would be nice to get like a 55k at BC I place. Don't, or, I don't think that you would see European teams traveling at the end of the that, European that's season. That's true. Here, right. That's, that's, that's why point. they're going there in the fall because then if they don't have to travel, it's like okay, fine. Yeah, we'll play you, Canada. That's fine. You're a good warm up to have. But here's the other thing. The question only mentions European teams. I think you could even include Japan or South Korea in there too. Uh, besides the African teams or the South American teams. Well, like, let's be honest. Another one has to be Italy. Like Canada good competition is good competition. Oh, could you imagine? Italy, Canada oh. has to be looked at. Italy not being in the you World Cup. You actually read my mind. I think that. Because a, a similar follower actually asked me this when I was at the viewing party. He asked me, what about Italy? Well, I mean, as much as I want Canada to play against teams that have qualified to the World Cup... If you, just, if, you just, if, you just, if you just look at the teams, just a couple of teams that just missed out on, you're still getting solid competition. Well, Italy won the, the Euro, so it's not like they're a team that's, you know, Down has dumps, been or, you know. you know, they just, they got hit by the, the fact they weren't, Jorginho missed a couple of penalties. That's really, literally, that's that, it. That's literally what their, their campaign came down to in the North Macedonia. And didn't sc- win a second ball against North Macedonia. Yeah, yep, so yeah. that's that's football. So it, I think Italy's still a very, very good team. And with Roberto Mancini sticking around, I think they're going to want to keep sa- their same identity. I think that could be a fun game. But the, the question is, what kind of teams, what kind of team would come? Would it be like, oh, I, you know, just young players? Because I, I, I still think there's value in playing only the very best. Like, for example, if you want if you want Italy to come, I want the very best of Italy to come. I don't want Italy, you know, to just send some half-assed team, you know, kind of... Well, that's why know, we're not going to get European teams. Players Unless you give the them an caps. incentive. And listeners, I'm rubbing my fingers together to make the money sign right now. Yes. Speaking of, there's been a lot of stories about how Argentina got some... 
millions of dollars to play Mexico. But we're not going to go there. No surprise. I mean, hey, while you're, we're not going to go there. We're not going to go while, there. While you're up and you're playing Mexico, you know, it's not that far to Canada. Come up and... A quick uh, four or five hour flight, you know. Like, here's the other thing. That it's also not cold, unlike November and whatnot. But, but that, that report came out how CONCAF offered Argentina, one of Canada, Mexico, or the U.S. And so they took the easy team in Mexico, right? Right, right. <laughs> well, hey, I mean, before World Cup, I mean, you have to be scoring, you know, beating teams 2 3 nothing to get the players' confidence up, right? But before we close out uh, the book on Canada's World Cup qualifying journey, let's recap their final qualifier, a one nothing loss to Panama on Wednesday at Estadio Romel Fernandez, which, funny enough, is their last qualifier in six years. Yeah, because they're not going to go and qualify for 2026. And by 2030, I'm sorry, but qualifying will be a joke. I yeah, because 48 teams. Is it so. too late to get back to 32? Is it too late to say sorry, Jenny? I'll be honest with you. I was literally <laughs> thinking about that the other day. Like, why not, you know, 32 tradition, unfortunately. Money wins. But anyways, Canada produced their joint lowest shot total of the Ocho in the defeats. Uh, the last time they generated the total was 1-1 draw with the U.S. on September 5th. So it's been a while. The Canadians still clinched top spot in the CONCACAF table despite the defeat, but they failed to secure a pot three spot for the draw, as we just saw, which I think made somewhat of a difference. I mean, not much. I mean, it was going to be difficult regardless. Yeah, perhaps. Tons of questions. The first one is from Adam BWFC. Should we be worried about the two losses in this window? This is a tricky one for me, Alex. I don't know about you. Because I think they did react well in the second half in some regard. Now, it wasn't the same as Costa Rica. It wasn't the same as El Salvador. Herman spoke about this after the game, by the way, because I asked him specifically about how they cope with the high press and maybe what Panama did to restrict the attack. So I think they did react all right in the second half. The Laren and Hoylet subs made a big difference. Hoylet is just so good, man, at, at just getting the ball through tight spaces and just whipping it across. So he's going to start against Belgium, right? Oh, I I really hope he does because I, I think he can make a difference in that regard. You know, you never know. Um, but I feel like Buchanan might get the start over him, especially with Davies coming back. But the difference between this and the El Salvador game and what was very similar to the Costa Rica game is... They didn't get the balances and the finishing to get that crucial goal or goals to win or draw the game. I know the persistent fouling wasn't punished on the Panamanian end. The pitch wasn't good. It was a rotated 11. I understand all of that. But their struggles against the high press, I feel, were more so exploited because of a few reasons, which I'll probably dive into. But one of them might be Atiba playing slightly deeper as a center back. Because then you don't have that extra outlet to get yourself out of that high press bypass their line of engagement and then get the ball further forward and then have them reeling to get back into position, right? Um, Davies' return could also help in that regard too. Um, just for a little bit of context too, Canada, I feel defensively they were due for a bit of a regression because as excellent as their defense has been throughout the entire roadshow, conceding only seven goals, you look at the expected goals against in the end, it was about 12.9 or so expected goals conceded. That's from Paul Carr on Twitter, who compiled the numbers together. It's 0.86 per 90, which was second in the Ocho, but the total expected goals against was third in the Ocho. That's still very good. That's still that very elite. elite. That's less than a goal against you. Yeah, exactly. Game. So you take that 100%, especially this defense. So they were due for a regression in that department because I don't think they were going to keep up that same actual pace. And it happened in this window that Costa Rica and Panama just punished them on a couple of occasions. 
That's it. You look at the underlying numbers in these games. Canada won the XG battle in both of the games. They did. Against Costa Rica and Panama. Like you mentioned, they were just not necessarily due for regression. Because it's, it's hard to say that Canada, they gave up less than an XG against Costa Rica. They gave up a goal. They gave up less than XG against Panama. They gave up a goal. It's not like they got battered 2 or 3 nothing each no. of the game. If anything, what happened was the their defensive numbers didn't regress to the, I guess that you could say they regressed to the mean, but if, if anything, what happened is the offense got a bit of a reality check, especially I'd say in the Costa Rica game. And I think they just got a taste of Concacaf. Really, that's the way I'd yeah, sum it they up. They got because the one thing is with this, with this Canadian team, we almost forgot what it was like to get Concacaf. You go undefeated throughout World Cup qualifying through your first seventeen games. You win twice in Central America, the last window where, yep. let's be honest, they were fantastic wins. But if Milan Boyan doesn't make a you know, wild save in the, in the first half against Honduras, if, if he doesn't make a wild save against El Salvador, those games could have easily been 1-1. Make, making that nine-point window that much more important because yeah. it was so close. And they also were out of contention, whereas Costa Rica, for example, was not out of contention. They needed a win. So. And... That's the thing with Canada. I look in this this window. They just really got CONCACAF. Look at Costa Rica, for example. They struggled out the gates, yes. Yep. But what happens? They found their feet. They were playing really well. Mark Anthony K gets a red card. And yeah. you can talk about, do you believe it's a red card? The indictment of di- diving in CONCACAF, yada, yada, yada. At the end of the day... Also it, set pieces. <laughs> at, at the end of the day, it was a red card. It happened to Canada, and it changed the game. They conceded, and then they played very well despite yeah. that. They were do something like that. They hadn't had any red cards this round. They hadn't had any of those, those moments. Same thing in Panama, where they just gave up a really good goal. And you can debate, should Atiba Hutchinson close down? That's a whole other debate. You know, should Kamal Miller have gotten beat at the back post? That's a whole other debate. Mm-hmm. Whatever happens is Panama executes on that play. They score. Kyle Aaron gets a goal disallowed by, by a toenail. At the end, they miss a couple of close chances. They lose. I think Canada, with their run, it just almost set unrealistic expectations in the sense that, yes... That they, they have to win every game. That's right. That they were full value for their results. I wasn't sitting there thinking, Canada d- d- does not deserve to be top of the table. They deserved it, but at the same time, you could acknowledge that it was a very razor, fine edge that they were riding. And they played two very good teams away this window. And... In the other, you know, maybe in the past window, if they played these teams, they would have got a nine-point window. I honestly think it's a lot. Cl- That's the thing about this three-point window that is going to be most frustrating is that the three points looks like an illusion because I look at how close Canada was in both of those games. It could have been as close to a nine-point window to a three-point window, whereas you look at, say, the first window when Canada only got five. It felt yeah. like that window, at most, you could have got six out of it. It didn't feel like Canada was particularly close to getting a nine-point window, whereas this one, it really was just... The two bounces that went the wrong Execution. way just got them that yep. much bad, more bad. I think the stats reflect that if you look into how those games played out and whatnot. Just, just two things to add to that. I understand what you're saying, and you do make a very good point, but how can we expect uh, to beat Morocco if we can't uh, beat Costa Rica and Panama? I won't talk too much about Costa Rica because that post game already happened. But against Panama, it's funny because we were sitting here uh, Sunday night, this exact same spot, right. talking about... Uh, the qualification against Jamaica and what should Herman do? Should he rotate his best eleven? Should he, you know, give uh, guys like Kone and Kropo a chance? And obviously the latter happened. Kone getting his first start. I kind of teased it earlier, but look, I mean that's the thing. I mean, you know, he took a risk. He took a risk and it didn't pay off this time. And that's okay. It's not the end of the world. But at the same time, uh, in seven months' time. I feel like Herman will be taking no risk like this. Oh, for sure. And I mean, I think 
one thing too is as well if you're talking to the morocco point i think it shows as an example of how you know the margins are going to be in the world cup sometimes it's just going to come down to you might not play the better game or you know you might not be the better team but if you execute in the right moments that's going to be the difference between mm-hmm. winning the world cup and not the great thing is with canada they have a very strong process you look at their xg numbers one of the best in the region for a reason mm-hmm. statistically they do all the right things Sometimes you do that. You do those things and you don't win. That's that's yeah, football. That's, that's sports. That's what they're gonna have to realize for the World Cup is yeah. find a way to, to to be ready to execute. Especially in three games. It's by a, the way, that's the thing with the, <laughs> with the World Cup. It's really such a, a tournament where it it's like that for anything. You can't do it like there's there's no alternative to it. It's just the reality is you work so hard to get to the World Cup. Most teams go through ten to twenty games. One bad bounce in one game and your World Cup's over. And 270 minutes. And Canada got a taste of, yeah. of that against Panama, so hopefully they can yeah. learn and realize that every moment you have to be locked in. You can't allow that cross and goal to go in against Panama. You can't allow no. that red card. You can't allow Cal- Celso Borges to get up for that header in that moment and execute your chances at the other end. And they did that in every under window except this one. I also think it's helped that they played three-game windows because, you know, they're going to play three games in what... Eight, seven, well, I mean, everybody days. else pretty much did. Like in South America, they did it quite a bit. Not in this last few months. They did go back to two-game windows, but pretty much every confederation had to do three-match windows to make up for all the time lost due to the pandemic. It's just some stuck with it, like CONCACAF, because they had to get their final round in, whereas others were just trying to make up for a little bit of lost time and then eventually reverted back to the mean. Mooney's ratings... Uh, can you break down what went wrong for Canada in an offensive perspective? Also curious for your thoughts on Kone's first start. Uh, bonus thoughts in Peru. Congrats, Peter. Thank you. Um, I should have worn the Peru shirt just to really rub it in Thomas's face because he keeps making fun of Peru. And I'm like, listen, we could be all those things. We're in the playoff and Chile isn't. And that's all that matters I, right I now. I left my Ecuador shirt back in Vancouver. Oh, I could have worn that. If I speak, I'm in trouble. Yes, there you go. Um... It's hilarious that Peru, if they advance, got pretty much the same group as 2018. They got Denmark and France. They can maybe exercise some demons against Denmark. And back to the point of execution, they could have beaten Denmark in that first game, which was seen as the winnable game to start the World Cup, I guess, outside of Australia. But that was more so something like, hey, if we need the points, at least they're there. They played well, couldn't execute. Denmark gets missed one counterattack. Also missed a penalty. Yes. I remember that game correctly. Yeah, Christian Cueva. He was in the doghouse for like three years until pretty much revitalizing himself this last few months. I am partially excited that they didn't get the same group as Canada because then my family and I wouldn't be able to speak for seven months and possibly like be longer. Same with Alex in Senegal. Yeah, there you go. Um, but I'm excited. I'm excited to see them uh, hopefully win the playoff and get through and hopefully avenge that Denmark defeat. As for the offensive side of things for Canada against Panama and Kone, um, I know we kind of already touched on it, guys, but I think that you do have to give some credit to Panama in terms of how they protected the flanks. They were giving up no space whatsoever, and Herdman did applaud them for this. And the cover in midfield was also very, very good. Did so well to take away space around the box, So credit to them for that. And then it just came down to, I think, at times a lack of ball progression in the midfield. And when they did get it, it just wasn't the right decision to just a lack of execution as we've talked about. Speaking of that subject, Kone did struggle against the press, which has been the case in Montreal at times, specifically against Cruz Azul and and higher quality teams. 
couldn't control the ball. You can maybe chalk that down to the poor pitch. But even in some other games where the pitch has been pristine, he's had some issues there. And then he got flustered to the point where he started rushing his decisions and nearly gave away a quality chance for Panama. But if not for, I believe it was Kamal Miller covering, that could have been a pretty decent shot on goal. When the tactical switch happened, and then Kone was playing further forward after the 20th, 25th minute, he started hesitating on the ball. Remember that through ball towards Jonathan David when he kind of took a, a second too long or a touch too, too many and just didn't hit the right pass? He was plagued by that in his 45 minutes, and that happens for a young player. Like, we forget how inexperienced he is and just how rapidly he's risen. The important thing now is how he reacts to those setbacks. Oh, for, for sure. And I think to add to the point, at, to specifically answer the question of the offensive struggles, I think for the first time since Costa Rica in November, their forward line got way too isolated from the midfield, and it made a huge that's difference. That, that's one of the first times in a while where Jonathan David was, it was like the, the, the beginning of the octave, he just had to keep dropping, and, and then Lucas Cavallini was just on an island up front. It had been a while since we'd seen that. I think Panama, full credit for how they just isolated the midfielders. You know, how Kone and, and, and you know, Kay just couldn't get the, the ball through. Like, you look at Canada, they were playing so well out of the back. It'd be one touch, one touch, and then it would hit mm -hmm. a wall in the midfield. Right. And I think Panama has to give have credit given to them for the midfield block. So I think one thing I learned from it, it makes you realize how important having one of Jonathan Azorio or Junior Hoylet on the pitch is just to be that player that makes sure the forward line doesn't get isolated from the midfield. Because it had been a while since we've seen that. I think it made a, a very big difference. Yeah. You know, it's hilarious to me because uh, we went out uh, for lunch just a couple of days ago. And the first thing that was asked by Mr. Galindo here yeah. is who would you take to Qatar? And, and, and Kone is one of those names where well, we'll see if, if his stock has, you know, been impacted at all by this. Uh, Paul Anderson uh, wants to know, did Herman's experimentation... DraftKings Sportsbook and Casino is coming to Ontario. Soon you'll be able to legally bet on all your favorite sports, ranging from soccer to playoff hockey and so much more. And that's not all. What if we told you the hottest new casino will be available right from your phone? DraftKings has all the latest features and promotions, ranging from daily odds boosts to best in-class casino games and so much more. Soon you'll be able to place a same-game parlay, score daily odds boosts, and play your favorite slots games anytime, anywhere in the province. DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable. Best of all, you can deposit and withdraw your cash whenever you want. Get excited, Ontario. DraftKings Sportsbook and Casino is on the way. While you wait, check out DraftKings now and tell them I sent you by using promo code FOOTBALL. That's promo code FOOTBALL. DraftKings Sportsbook and Casino, coming soon to Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-866-531-2600, 19 plus, physically present in Ontario, eligibility restrictions apply, see DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. Subject to successful AGCO registration and execution of an operating agreement with iGaming Ontario. Stifle the momentum that the team had moving forward? In the end, yes, it did. But we're probably not saying this, that they somehow get a result, especially a win, right? Because that tends to mask a lot of issues. I was very surprised how much of the team did change because 
Herdman has spoken about consistency and chemistry and camaraderie. Way to make changes. But then after the game, he then talks about managing the players and you can't run them into the ground and this and that. And I'm like, that's fair enough, but you're sending mixed signals in a way. Like, you almost have to give these... And I know it's tough to do this, but this is where having a squad that... You know, you're 17, 18 deep does help you in terms of guys who are in rhythm, who know the system, who who can be dropped into the 11 and just play and you don't skip a beat. It's easier said than done. You also know who are locks and who aren't. Yes. Yes, as well. I, I mean, I understand why he did the experimentation because I guess he did want to rest some guys, but... Man, they did not look in sync at all. Just like in that El Salvador game, but you can maybe chalk that down to a lack of match fitness for like at least a third of that squad. This time around, maybe less of that excuse. I don't know. I don't really buy the the rotation thing though, because I think back to each third game of, of every window. Like they had to rotate pretty heavily going into El Salvador in September. Yes. They had to rotate not as heavily because uh, there weren't as many injuries, but still there were a lot of injuries in October for Panama. Mm-hmm. They had to rotate heading into El Salvador. There's some that's different as well. Like and they they rotated the same in this game. Yet they got wins in three of those games, and this was just really the first game where it, I guess we could say, backfired on them. I think. This hasn't been... When I saw the roster, I wasn't horribly unsurprised because it was something we're used to seeing where in that, that back end of Windows, Herdman had been trusting his depth. And uh, for for whatever reason, Panama, this time, maybe they were prepared for that. They were ready for rotation. That's something that they, they targeted. But I, I'm not yeah. sitting here and thinking that was the rotation that, that cost him because it's something... If it was something completely new, you could be, okay, yeah, they, he tried something new. It did backfire. But he had been rotating in, in every game and... Keeping certain players on the pitch like he did. The one piece of rotation that I think cost him, and I understand he played there in the first game, it was probably Hutchinson at center back. Yes. That is probably the one piece of rotation that really hurt them, and the one that I look at is saying, like, yeah, that definitely backfired a bit. Oh, for sure. I think that's the one where I do wonder, it would be nice to know what was up with Steven Vittoria and Daniel Henry, because Daniel Henry wasn't even in the squad, and he left the game, the last game with an injury. That is right. something where. You do wonder if he yeah. wasn't fit. Steven Vittori didn't see the field once over nope. three games, so obviously... I'm also not stunned. Herman mind games once again. Yes. Five center backs in the roster, Atiba goes in. Yeah, so obviously there was some bigger issues there in terms of knocks than, than we realized uh, in terms of who was was healthy and whatnot. And, you know, we could, uh, we could get into a whole uh, discussion in terms of why we didn't right. learn about those sorts of things, but the reality is we had no idea what Vittoria's status was for a friend of the games. That's and I, I do agree, though, with Hutchinson. You, you, you did wonder why couldn't have someone like Kamal Miller slotted in or Scott Kennedy slotted in in the, mm-hmm. in the central uh, area. But uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't think the rotation was necessarily the, the issue in terms of the game. I think Panama just really did their homework. They targeted Canada's weakness as well. They, they exploited it, and it just didn't help that Canada had a rotated squad, and maybe they weren't used to having to, to adjust like they did. And it's no coincidence. Canada played a great game in the second half when they brought on all the regular sometimes players. Sometimes it just doesn't click. That's it. I'm not going to ask you guys this question again, uh, but uh, Vince Alvarado is also worried about the rotation. Uh, he says, I think my only gripe with him is that he didn't take advantage of the full team. Zero minutes for Gutierrez, who I imagine isn't thrilled with how he's not being used. Miller and Cornelius. Dan Clark, is the defense still the biggest problem? Now that our defense, uh, particularly our center backs, will be overwhelmed 
by the four play of the top teams and a similar question again from Vince also don't love Atiba at center back call up another if Victoria is hurt yeah so we, we've already kind of danced around it why don't we just dive into it Atiba at center back um I think he'll probably continue there for at least another window because I think he would not be starting in two games I understand some of that was forced through Victoria and whatnot and possibly Henry um there are some benefits in that he is a good first-time outlet to use when building from the back. He does calmly orchestrate things back there, draw in the line of engagement, and then you can progress it forward. The problem is without Atiba, you'll lose another midfielder who, as I said off the top of this segment, can then turn around and progress the ball and bypass that high press. That's one problem. The other issue is, and I think we saw this against... Panama specifically, as fantastic as Atiba is, and as much as he's defying age, and yes, we still need to clone Atiba, don't get me wrong, in transition, in open space, he doesn't have the legs to be able to cover all that ground anymore. And you saw Panama get a couple of counterattacking opportunities, one of which led to their goal, where if Atiba was maybe a little quicker, maybe a little more willing to press that cross, which then led to Gabriel Torres' goal, Maybe it doesn't happen, right? Now, I know we're picking and choosing here, but then there were moments when Alistair Johnson had to come out of nowhere and make some really good last-ditch tackles because he was nowhere to be found, Atiba. Um, so that's the downside with it. In terms of the defensive play, Vittoria Miller against Lukaku is probably not ideal <laughs> for the World Cup. It isn't exactly a balanced matchup. You're going to give me and, a heart attack, Peter. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, but, but this is what I was saying to Thomas post-Jamaica. The World Cup is the cream of the crop. Tactically, these teams are just as well drilled and defensively astute as they come. I don't really worry about the, the collective defense too much because I think they are going to buy in. But the individual defenders against some of these players, yeah, I think you have every right to be at least concerned. Yeah, for sure. I mean, to start with the Tiba at the back, I feel like it's really going to have to be circumstantial, whether I like him or it not. It cannot be permanent. Oh, no, I think that's it. I think personally his best place is in the midfield. And again, I do wonder how much Vittoria's questionable health played, played a role in this. But I like the like Peter said, playing out the back. It did make a big difference to, to have someone who can, can play out the back like he can. And it, it, I, I think, for example, against Panama, Canada played out the back fantastically. It was in the midfield where their issues really yeah, came together. Exactly. It's just more defensively, I think the fact that Atiba played, like, for example, he would have been great against Jamaica. Why? Because Jamaica wasn't whipping in crosses and doing these things where that's an area where Canada struggled. You look at their goals they gave up against Panama and Costa Rica. It was crosses in the air where they just caught uh, Canada in the turn, and you do wonder if they had a more of a aerial general like Daniel Henry or Stephen Vittoria on the pitch in either of those cases, if the Borges or Torres goals end up uh, end up going in. So with with Hutchinson, I just do what wondered if he was, uh, you know, maybe just the aerial threat, uh, the, the lack of aerial threat was also something. Just because you have Johnson back there, he's not always great in the air. Kamal Miller can be great in the air, but when Johnston and Hutchinson are also, it kind of is a tough matchup. So that was the mo mo biggest thing with the Tiba Hutchinson. I think circumstantially, if you're playing a team that isn't really going to be whipping and crosses, so like you don't start him against Belgium because I do not want have to have him go up yeah. against Romelu Lukaku. And if we could draft in like a six foot five, like 
CFL player to, to take on Romelu <laughs> Rom- Rom- Lukaku. I'd appreciate that. But, uh, uh, you, you know, jokes aside, I would like to see Daniel Henry, for example, in that matchup. I think that's one that Daniel Henry will love getting up in a, in a physical duel like that. So I just think in terms of the defense itself, I have no worries as long as Canada continues to buy in as they have. Because one thing that they've done such a good job of is... You know, maybe collect individually. You can see, oh, this player, you know, isn't as good as some of his other counterparts. But when they're blocked in in collective, they just do such a good job of of, of locking things down. And hey, at worst, force guys down Alistair Johnson's side because this guy never misses a a fifty fifty and uh, go from there. But yeah, I don't think Canada's defense will be a worry as long as teams don't find a way to isolate guys one on one. And something that Panama and Costa Rica did a good, very good job of doing. This was a match that Daniel Henry could have been earmarked for. Uh, also, uh, we've spoken about this so many times on the show, Peter. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Scott Kennedy, yes, he's a left one at center back, but he could have slotted in uh, to replace Atiba. On the right side, though, as a left footer, I'm not a big fan of that. Here's the I thing, think, though. I think in the middle of the back three. In the I middle can... of the back three, yes. That's what That's I would have said. Yeah, yeah. He is like a replacement for Victoria in the future. Like, Victoria, like, after this World Cup, Victoria's out. Like, there's no... Some people might say, oh, well, maybe, what about the Gold Cup? No. Victoria, for me... I mean, me, I think he'll still be in the fold, but I do really wonder about his body, if anything. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's... I'm sure he'll want to play, but just already yeah. is. He's body. 35, but an old 35. That's like, like, he's played a lot of heavy minutes, and yes. I think it's catching up to him. I think, yeah, I agree, because per- personally, for me, I see it's between Miller or Kennedy long-term. I see, actually, Ken- Miller, very good piece... Uh, in the middle long term just how he yes. passes the ball yes the way he sometimes gets beat one-on-one out wide he doesn't yeah. have to do that much yeah, in exactly. the middle whereas kennedy has the pace to have that recovery speed and get back you know uh, that's why i'm thinking like long term for example at the end of the year based on how victoria's body is how henry's season go i could see against belgium for example johnston miller and kennedy is your back three like that's, that's not bad i could see that long term yeah. so it's going to be interesting to see what happens in terms of long-term central cb options because i think we have to talk about it <laughs> well not we we won't now but canada we will eventually have to talk about it canada centrally they don't actually have a lot of central cbs because we talk about all these new cbs that have come yeah. up a lot of them are best in in wide positions Correct. there's not a, like a single like one guy maybe joel waterman could be that guy but even then he looks possibly he's been playing on the outside of a back mm. three lucas mcnaughton is one guy actually who yeah, who, could, who, who yeah. has the physical qualities and has played in the central uh, the middle of a back three, but other than those two, it's really not it's that thin, many. Man. Uh, it's so thin. There needs to be if if Canada. We talk about Canada needs CBs. That's not a fair discussion anymore. Canada needs specifically central CBs who yeah. can man a back three. It's been the weaker weakest position uh, for a long time. Even if it has gotten better uh, over time. Another question from Jordan, talking specifically about this topic. Will Herman try to bring in right footed center back between now and November? Yeah, I think that's probably going to be one of his priorities because I know we talked about a center back who can play in the center of the back three, Alex. But you look at the left sided center back depth; it's pretty damn good right now. Poor Derek right? Cornelius, poor one out, <laughs> poor one out for Derek. Cornelius. Your boy, yes. Um, but then you look at the right side, and who is really going to come through and challenge Alistair Johnston in that position? There are some names who are possibilities, like if Bilal Halbuni can get on loan somewhere and play regularly in, like, say, the second Bundesliga in Austria or a league like that, he can make a case for himself. 
if Tom Holmes turns out to be eligible to play for the national team, he immediately, I think, Mm -hmm. becomes the number one target, at least in terms of quality. I don't think he surpasses Alistair Johnson right now because he has the edge in terms of the amount of minutes he's played. But for sure, he bolsters that side of the pitch. And that is, for right now at least, one of the top priorities for this player pool. Yeah, for sure. Unless someone like Hal Booney makes a breakthrough... Uh, you know, into into the pool, and hey, maybe even some like Justin Smith as well. If I'm not mistaken, he is right. He can, pl- yeah, he's right footed. He can play midfield or, or center back. So, if, yeah. unless those two break through at their clubs, or if a, a Tom Holmes or another dual national comes in, those are all big ifs. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at three players right now off the top of my head that Canada should be looking. I mentioned two of them. I mean, Joel Waterman is one in terms of how he plays in possession of the ball out of his, the ball at his feet. He can play in the middle. He can play in the wide. He plays in a back through Montreal. So it's, That's also it's true. A, it's a familiarity thing. He's been in Canada's fold before, so it's mm-hmm. not like Herdman has ignored him. I think Waterman is one. I think Lucas McNaughton is another. Based on how good he was last year at Pacific, the fact that he's looked very good for Toronto in a back three, can play in the central position, but also can play. He's, right. he's not. He's not. You know, like you say, he doesn't have a lack of foot speed. Yeah. He is one, and then a complete wild card. If if he continues to play in this position, Caden Chung, I could see a lot of what Ooh. he brings in terms of the Alistair Johnston role, oh. a fullback converted to center back. He's defensively responsible enough, but he can also play with the ball at his feet. He looked did not look out of place for TFC in in the back three as a center back. I think based on where what he could bring, especially the fact that he could shore up the right back depth at the same time, even the left back depth, like he can play on the left, he can too, play everywhere, which is crazy. So I think way. someone like Caden Chung is a very slept on option in terms of the versatility that he brings John Herdman would love so if he gets a good run of games I'd love to see honestly I'd love to see all three of those guys thrust in for Nations League because long term those are the three guys I'm looking at because let's be real for the World Cup unless the Canadian Premier League has an absurd year and you know (laughs) gets you know as much as I'd want to see it I just think you'd have to have a very 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 strong year to get into the fold it's going to have to be an MLS player. And in terms yeah. of players playing at the back, those are the three I can think of. Unless like someone like like Mateo, unless Mateo Campagna jumps up to the Whitecaps first team and, and starts playing regularly, that's a bit of a long shot. Like Keyshawn so, Ferdinand, someone like that. I guess yeah, he's more Karifa, so right yeah, back, but, but he's, yeah. he's on loan now. So, yeah. so Chung's the last one I'll throw out there. I don't know. I'm actually, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that one. I'm not against it, but they have to earn it. Like for me... If you're gonna if you're gonna add a player at this point who hasn't been part of uh, the not just the not just the Ocho but the the whole uh, cap, cycle the whole thing right um, it has to be like a player that's like right away and and for that I think of Tom Holmes if he is eligible um, when you think of players that have played at World Cups that you know kind of a last minute addition hint hint Marcel Thoris <laughs> with that report you know coming out we're so not getting into the absolute nonsense. Uh, let's just say it's typical Mexico. Anyways, but Mexico but, catching but, strays today. But, but that's the thing, though. I just I just think that it has to be the right fit, and 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 I hope that Justin Smith does break through. Heck, even if he's playing at a at a, at a second division club in France regularly or semi regularly, I would even you know uh, put him in in the eleven. If he's playing the, regularly, not sure. in the eleven, yeah. but maybe you know just slide him in, and then he's he, in the pool. If he's playing exactly, yes, exactly. Yes. Uh, which we'll talk about a little bit later, but that's the thing. I mean, Joel Waterman, he's a guy that also Johnson came on the show and, and said, earmarked and said, watch out for this guy. But it's not like every single one of these players, which you make a good list, is sort of potential to, you know, you could say this guy has the potential to play at a World Cup. I mean, I think it's, it's you never know. It's seven months from now. I think if 
someone like McNaughton, Waterman, or Chung are playing regularly for TFC or Montreal with some of their Canadian teammates are excelling, there's no reason why they can't be in that, that pool of players to at least be maybe in September, maybe they're good enough to at least go in the, the squad, compete and win a spot. I think they're, I'm not suggesting, like, I'm not saying Belgium. Maybe Herman doesn't have a choice. Or Tori gets injured and then Waterman's called in. Maybe exactly. Yeah. And I'm thinking you want to keep the players hungry too. I, I'm not saying that we're going to see a back three of McNaughton, Waterman, and Chung against Belgium, but I think it'd be it'd be nice to see if these guys could compete for that 23 or, or based on what we've heard, 26, that 26 spot. It would be nice to see one of those three uh, fill a need because at the same time, as, as much as I think Canada is going to rely on loyalty and all that to pick their squad, it's normal. You do got to keep guys hungry. I think that's Canada knows that. I don't think anyone on this team is going to be sitting there thinking I have a guaranteed spot at the World Cup because that's just you know it's it's not going to work like that. You're going to have to be at least being better than the guy you know below you or, or showing that you deserve a spot. And I think having guys like Chung, McNaught, and Waterman push into the fold will be great for the center backs. I just look at. Look at someone like, let's look three years ago. Derek Cornelius was the lone left-footed center back. Kamal Little was playing as a left back. And Scott Kennedy, no one knew about him. Look how much having Kennedy and Miller has been for that pool. It's, it's really just having those guys in the discussion is, has made the competition bigger. So I think Chung, McNaughton, and Waterman can help do that at the right-footed center back position. Now, we got a question asked about this uh, from Mike K at Sports Fanatic A. Which French players could make the World Cup roster uh, 23 and 26. You already mentioned some of them at center back, but let's talk about other options that, that could be wild cards. Okay, I think there was also a question from Dan Clark regarding uh, locks Correct. for the World Cup. If everyone is healthy. If everyone's healthy, yeah. So in terms of the locks, I think basically everyone from this recent squad except for Gutierrez, because he's going to be replaced by Davies. Probably Liam Fraser, Ismail Kone. I'd even put Liam Miller in there and probably just based on form, but I don't think he'll ultimately get dropped. Lucas Cavallini. I think everybody else can probably be locked in right now. And then from there, the fringe players who can get in, well, I mean, some of them we mentioned there, but Kone, Miller, Theo Corbinu is still going to be in the conversation, especially if he returns to Wolves in the summer, does really well in preseason. And then maybe, who knows, gets some minutes because he's been bossing League One. I think he's above a League One standard at this point. Um, so he's another name to get in there. Other fringe guys, like, it, we're seven months away, right? Like, anything can happen. I don't think Herdman makes too many changes to the squad as is, but you can probably see... Ayoakinola. Yeah, yeah Ayoakinola, true. If he scores, like, say, 12, 15 goals from now till the end of the season, he could get in. But I don't think we're going to see many changes other than, say, three or four, if possible. Yeah, and I, I, this is bold, but I think it's only going to be a young player that can play their way in at this point. Just yeah. based on the fact of it's, there's the, the turnaround time short, it's going to have to be a young player that really bursts on the scene like Ismail Kone did, where I just think someone like a veteran, uh, it'll be a little harder. So for me, yeah, it's someone like, I mean, Kone, I guess. It's uh, someone like Jaquiel Marshall-Rudy. Uh, it, it's something like the names I mentioned before. It's someone like Theo Corbinau. Heck, if Charles Andreas Brim gets promoted to the first division in the Netherlands and continues to play regularly, I think he could be also a dark horse. And he's been called up in this. And, and, and he's, show. he's been so, scoring regularly in the second division of, of, of the Netherlands. He's also been well. Like, I've seen film of his from the time he got to Eindhoven until now. And when I watched him, I'm like, I don't understand why Herbin's calling him up. I cannot see a specific reason that makes him a weapon other than his pace. 
And now he's, he's harnessed that. He is a threat on the ball. He's fearless. He's making the right decisions. He's getting into the box. He's scoring. I'm like, okay. And once again, as I've said many times on this podcast, that's why I'm here and why John Herdman's picking the players. So I think there's going to be a lot of guys like that that were sleeping on. Someone like Brim where... He's in that radar. All of a sudden, you get into a first division of the Netherlands, like the Netherlands. That's like, and he was playing the first top division 10 of league. He was playing like, in the first division of Belgium not too long ago, too. In, but very sparingly. In, in but the, the fact system, that he was still in the first team. I in, mean. The, in the system is something. I agree. Yeah. I agree. It's something. He, he did come through Lille and Muscat. You know, all these. He's also twenty three years old. He's going to be turning twenty four soon, so he is a little older in his development. But listen, if you're a twenty three, twenty four year old playing on the top flight of the Netherlands, that's still a very. I don't solid think Canada's at the point where no. you can leave a player. No, like but I'm saying home. like people people might be thinking, oh, this is like a 19, 20-year-old. No, he's 23, turning 24 soon, just for the record. But regardless, the point stands. And I think it, there's a lot of players like that. We can go through the list. Like, you know, another player that comes to mind, an Olympic teammate. If Theo Bear finally gets his feet running off and running in Scotland, the Scotland Scottish division is one Herdman respects. Thomas uh, disagrees, but <laughs> hey, Herdman, Herdman respects the Scot. Look at Harry Payton too. Not, Harry, not had, Harry, sure had Harry Payton to no, that. Discussion. No, no, he was he well, was well, team Tyburn over Walterspoon well, in March well, and June. And, well, you know. here's the thing. Here's the thing. What, what I will say is this: that um, you bring up St. Johnson, Walterspoon. I think he could be that last minute addition if they make. The World Cup squads, 26 oh, you, 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 you didn't think this 20, on 26 Sunday. players, 26 players. You didn't think this on Sunday. Alex says it because and now you think No, no, no. But, but here's the thing. Alex just said two minutes ago or three minutes ago, was it, was it that he only sees as young players that could be those fringe players that step oh, for up. For me, Wotherspoon. Like you're not, you're, you're, you're not going to bring, you're not going to call up a 30-year-old with zero caps that, you know. Because well, for me, right? part of Unless the, it's, I, it's I say that because Wother, Wotherspoon, for me, is part of the core when he's healthy. I think 100%. I Herdman values him a lot. I think, think two months, would it be enough? Just two months of playing regularly? Yes. Yes. I, I, as long as his knee's fine, he's not, the thing is with Herdman and Wotherspoon, there's such a like, clear definition with his role and I think it's the same with Daniel Henry and some of yeah. these other players where Wotherspoon knows he's not going to come in and he might not start a game with the World Cup he might play 10 minutes but he's like got a defined role whereas some of these youngsters they're yeah. going to have to like like look at we'll, we'll use the famous example Russell Tybert even if he plays as he did last year and I'll, I'll be on the record he was phenomenal last year at the end of it he hasn't been that good lot this year he's been quite you know not good yes. to be honest even if he plays like he did last year, it's going to be so much harder for him to climb in because it's like, do you really, uh, for a, someone who's going to be in a fringe role, do you want more of a veteran when you have your guys already locked in at this point of the Correct. cycle? Like your Wotherspoons, your Henrys, your Cavallinis, those kind of core pieces, your mm-hmm. Ks, etc. Whereas I think someone like a Marshall Rudy or, or, or a Kone or even a Brim, they have kind of that, they have more of a potential for an explosive year and you want that at the, the bottom of your roster. Why? Because, let's be honest, as much as having this this team now is to compete for 2022, you do, a lot of these guys are going to be around in 2026. So why would you exactly. put a spot on a 28-year-old? That's as, why I would bring Fraser over Wotherspoon if it came down to it. But why 2026. But the thing is, Wotherspoon's such a key Water, part of this team now. 2026. And Wotherspoon offers something that no other midfielder has in this team other than maybe possibly in the future Ismail Kone in terms of that offensive presence where you can stretch defenses and and make runs in behind. Whereas Fraser, there are already replacements for him in the heart of the midfield. So I think that if you're just calling up another guy, especially when spots are so finite, I don't think that's the smart way to go. If Walterspoon's fit and playing and there's no one else like him in the squad, you take him. So the only guy I can think is a comparable 
just stylistically, it's it's Harry Payton or Stefan Mitrovic, and they would have to, you know, have have Again, be, have an explosive year, ex- have an explosive, year. and then at the same time, I don't think they replace Wotherspoon. They just add another bit of that because I, I think yeah. My my point is to use the Russell Tybert versus say, and we haven't even talked about Lucas Diaz. Oh, that's if, it. If, if he breaks through. But see, or maybe he's loaned it into another, you know, first division that, team. Well, that's a perfect example. I'll use that. Say if it was Russell Tybert versus Lucas Diaz, they both have excellent years. Of course, one playing at Sporting, one playing at Whitecaps. You do give Diaz the example or the the edge, but just the fact that why would you bring someone like Tybert to be the twenty sixth man when he already, he hasn't been in the group for years? Mm-hmm. He has he's he's more of a veteran. Whereas Diaz, he play he's the twenty sixth man in this World Cup. He's arguably the tenth or ninth man in the twenty twenty six, or even the fifth or fourth, based on how his rise goes. So I think ultimately at the bottom of the squad, it's going to be young guys. It's going to be if whoever has the most explosive year. Hey, heck, maybe Jevison. Finally yeah, gets I was a just about to bring it up because he actually uh, posted an Instagram story uh, with with a little heart and kind of flags. So who knows? Maybe yeah, his, maybe uh, maybe he finds his, his form. Is, is Time to read into it. Maybe. Put the two thousand word <laughs> epic a breakdown of it. Maybe Social he'll, media, man. It, it's, maybe Jevison it, scores a bunch and that he he gets called up. Heck, we'll we'll uh, use him just to, to to give you know good things coming through. So we'll send a third straight to the Mexicans. What if Marcelo Flores <laughs> sees how Canada's doing? He has a great year and they call him in. I think it'd have to be a young player at the bottom of the squad, and then that's why uh, 2026 is that much more important because Canada only has what three, four players that are age 30 and over. Like this team is still very, very it's a young. young team. Yeah, Paul Anderson for the potential 23-man squad. Can we see Herman uh, putting loyalty over players that are in form? Uh, example, uh, Kalini yesterday starting over Ukpo or Liam uh, Millar. Uh, not even getting any playing time. Uh, similar question, is there any chance Herman doesn't take Lucas Kellini to Qatar? From Matt. This is what the conundrum is for me. Ugbo is the different, unique striker. Cavallini offers qualities, theoretically, when he's in form, that the other strikers offer. So if you're going to pick it based on that, it's Ugbo 100%. But as Herman talked about loyalty, as he talked about going with the guys who got you there and how much it means. And he's also talked about how much Cavallini is a figure in that room, which we can't really judge because we're not in there. It really does make me second guess whether he would actually leave out Cavallini if he isn't in form and, and, and everything else. The, the risk is if you drop, drop Ugbo, then you have the same mold of striker in your squad. So I think for that reason, I'm still going to go with Ubo over Cavallini, but it would not shock me whatsoever if he did indeed take Cavallini. I think personally we're going to see both there. I think if Herdman's going to find a way to, to, to keep both, and I think someone else... But if you could only pick one. If I can only pick one, I think... Come on, Alex, you're a Whitecaps guy. Well, personally, I, <laughs> personally, I'm picking Ike Ubo, of course. I just like the profile that he brings, um, but... Yeah, I think Lucas Cavallini, he's such a wild card in the sense where he just brings something different to, to the striker pool. And I, I do think one, for example, he didn't get put in the best conditions to succeed against Panama just based on the fact that it wasn't really a good, like I mentioned before, the forwards and the, the, the midfielders got so stretched and it really wasn't a good uh, game for him. So I think I think Cavallini's going to stay in the squad. I think Herdman values him for for a reason, but it's going to be very interesting to see what his role is now because it, it's been a while since he scored for Canada. He had people are quick to forget that he also had a very good cameo off the bench versus Honduras, if I'm not mistaken, where 
It looked, you know, the, the narrative was completely different. So who knows with Cavallini in two months, he could completely shift this discussion. But uh, I definitely think Cavallini will be there. But personally, I think Herdman will fit both. In. And if someone else is going to get dropped out, it, it might be in, in midfield or, or unfortunately someone like Liam Miller where... As much as I like having Liam Miller, I'd personally pick him in my squad just based on the fact he's an out-and-out winger and Canada hasn't really played with those. And when they do, they've preferred Davies, they've preferred Hoylett, they've preferred Buchanan, Buchanan even Larea at that point. Yeah. It just might be harder for Miller to, to find a role. Also true. Going up against Belgium, Croatia, and Morocco, teams that have players playing in the top five leagues, I think you have to go fire with fire here. And I think that's what Ugbo brings. Uh, the Cavalini just uh, does not. Final question from Claudio. What's been the most surprising part for this cycle for the Canaman T? The defensive performance, seven goals against five wins without Davies or a 6-1-0 home record? I told Claudio this on Twitter. I needed to take the day to think about this because it's so difficult for me. Ultimately, I I personally don't think so because I think you can make a case for both. Um, the, the top two. I, I think going unbeaten at home, It's Canada's always done well at home traditionally. Especially under Herdman. Regardless. I don't think they've lost um, at home under, under Herdman, but if I'm putting that no, out No, I don't think they have either. Look, no one expected either of these things. I lean slightly towards the defense because we saw them do well without Davies at the Gold Cup. And we've also seen them do well when he maybe hasn't been at his top, top level, right? And I know World Cup qualifying is different, but to concede just seven goals in 14 games, yes, they did overachieve their expected goals slightly. That's incredible because no one could have seen that coming. Whereas I think when Davies went down, a lot of fans and media were like, you know what? They'll probably be okay. Did they expect five wins? Probably not. But they certainly did not see this defensive performance coming because that's what everybody was worried about entering the Ocho. Yeah, for me, I think it's straightforward because I, I have thought about it. Canada has never lost at home under Herdman. They have the, I think the Honduras game at the beginning of the Octo is the only time they dropped a point in Canada under Herdman because they swept through their Nations League qualifiers. They slept through True. Nations League at home, and then they've swept through this. So home, I was expecting something like this. Yeah. I mean, 6-1, and one, I didn't expect that. I expected maybe a draw against the U.S. or Mexico yeah. and maybe a 5-2-0 and o record. So I'll credit for them for that, but... For me, between Davies and, and, and the defense, it has to be the defense. I think I didn't think Canada's defense was ever as bad as some threw out there. I always thought that Canada was maybe underperforming. They had to figure out their system. They had they to did. figure. I mean, I'd said it many times in 2019. I wasn't sitting there looking at Canada and thinking they're bad in defense because of this. I was just thinking they need to stop playing Stephen Vittoria and Daniel Henry in high lines. And they did. And offer some freaking protection. And they, they did. In transition. And look what yes. happened. They started defending well. So I think for, 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 for me, I think it has to be the, the defensive record. Even though I just said what I said, I think it's very surprising that it ended up being as good. I, yes. I thought even when, okay, you, I, you, you, you play to the strengths of Victoria, Henry, and company. We, obviously, I'll leave out Kennedy and Miller because we didn't really expect them to be center backs and Johnson either. We just expected to be the, the Henry, uh, Vittoria, and Cornelius show this cycle. No. I did not expect it to be this good. Whereas someone like Alfonso Davies, he's a massive part of this team. He's, he's, he's a huge part, but you've seen these guys step up like Laren, uh, you know, David. I was super excited when, you know, we, we heading into 2021 20, to finally see Ustachio play. And, you know, we, we I, I put it out on Twitter. There's a reason why I had Stefan Ustachio as my MVP of World Cup qualifiers for, for Canada. So where's someone And like, also the main man you use for all your memes. <laughs> he is a funny guy. He's got his he's got his good memes. So I think for me, 
Not saying that Davies, if Davies was healthy, he'd probably be Canada's MVP, but it's at the point where there are not other guys carrying the load for him, whereas the defense, I did not expect this yeah. whatsoever. Throughout 2021, the more Canada won without Davies, the less impressed I was, just because of all the depth that maybe people outside of the media and the average sports fan would be like, what, they won without Davies? Think about how That's crazy incredible. that is, though. They that don't have their crazy. best player. They win five games without him. They go through an entire tournament without him, get to the semifinals. And you could argue Twitch. deserve to beat Mexico in that Gold Cup semifinal. And everyone's like, yeah, that's that's normal. And like no one really thinks about it. Like they were without Davies for half the Ocho. Yep. He missed seven games. And they still finished top of CONCACAF. Well, then they, they still win, didn't like, lose a beat. Five of those games, too, without him. Yeah, they won even, five of the games. Yes. That's even more bumpy. Yes, exactly. Which is why I'm saying, like, this is a tough choice. Because, like, it's not so much they coped without Davies and they adjusted without Davies. It's that they th- still thrived without Davies in most circumstances. The, the hardcore fans will remember this. Uh, playing at home was not a fortress. And 6-1-0 and record. That's uh, false. They have always been really good at home. You sure? Oh yes, even in, even against Honduras in 2012, and and yeah, they, that's they were, true. I mean, yeah. Other than even in the yeah the, the 2018 cycle, other than their loss to Mexico at home, they beat Honduras one 0 which was a huge result. They beat El Salvador three one. It's just because they couldn't get any points away. Uh, that, that that was really, the big problem. They couldn't win in Central. All America. they needed was like one. They didn't even need wins in South Central America. They needed yes. draws, and they couldn't even get that. That's what killed them in the last cycle. So I'm actually just looking through the numbers here. The only loss they seem to have at home in like the last it's 10, Mexico. 15 years is Mexico at BC Place in 2016. But they didn't even get to the the well, what used to be called. But the it doesn't hex. matter. You said they it hasn't been a fortress. No, it it's, ha- been a fortress. it's actually been a fortress, and that's the thing. A lot of their losses, it's been away, and it's been gold cups. Because correct, those are obviously played yeah. in the U.S. But there's it's only been fine. There's a study about it in terms of if you look at the U.S. and Canada, their home records are phenomenal. I think like between them, they must have like one or two losses in the last like five ten years combined. Like correct. it's ri- ridiculous between yeah. those those two. So I mean, for for Davies. I'll agree with you in the sense that I don't think anyone expected to do this well, Correct. but what I'll add is this is fantastic for Canada because imagine the fact that right now your team is so solid and you made the World Cup and won all these games without Davies. You're adding a World Eleven player for the World Cup on top of what you, you have. That is a bit of a wild card for, for them heading into this, and it is such a blessing to think that they, they, they lost a World Eleven player, didn't miss a beat, and now they can add a player like that in a free role, basically, because before we wondered, was Davies going to be a left back? Well, Sam Adekubi, credit to him for how big he stepped up in his absence, and the fact that we could now see Davies at a free role at the World Cup is going to be something. Yes. The defense is the most impressive part, uh, and I'll say this. Uh, Ulster Johnston making his debut. Scott Kennedy making his debut. Uh, guys that had no caps before 2021. And now they're some of the first names that you think of in yes, the 11. If, if not an A1, A2 option. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the most uh, cons- uh, impressive thing. And because the center back position has always been um, deemed as weak, and, and even in CONCACAF, yes, CONCACAF is going to be way different than playing against um, Belgium, Croatia, and Morocco. But if you do well in CONCACAF, then you can at least, you know, bring that good form of, you know, keeping a clean sheet mm-hmm. into the World Cup. And finally, speaking of Alfonso Davies just a few minutes ago, 
Uh, he's resumed training with Bayern Munich. Uh, head coach Julian Nagelsmann confirmed confirmed that he should be available again for the second leg against VRL. He last played December 17th against Wolfsburg. Shall see him again very soon. That is going to do it for us for this episode. Thank you, everybody, for listening as always. And thank you to our now regular guest at this point, Alexander Gonge Ruzik. Um, pleasure having you on the show. We will certainly have you back again if you're not already sick and tired of us. Oh, how could I not be? This was some good discussion today. Pleasure to to talk about the, this sort of news and uh, hope to see you guys very, very soon uh, back on the show. Indeed. And congratulations on the one soccer good, by the way. We never formally congratulated you off the top of the show. We should have. Appreciate so, it. Congrats. Appreciate it. We talk every day. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> Anyways, that'll do it for us, guys. We will speak to you next week.